We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, but even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're really seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And as our guest today, Tim Chirac writes, August 2017 was a reminder of the scariest and riskiest days of the Cold War. All month long, Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un engaged in a bitter war of words that escalated into tit-for-tat displays of military might and ended with mutual threats of mass destruction. Not where we hoped we'd be at this point in our history. To many Americans who remember October 1962, this moment is even scarier than that Cuban Missile Crisis because we have two clearly blustery, macho heads of government who appear to be somewhat uh, insecure and immature. (sighs) Does it have to be that way? Is war inevitable? What is the real story? How do we get to this incredibly dangerous point, and what can be done to ease tensions? Our guest today is Tim Chirac, a Washington, D.C.-based journalist and the author of Spies for Hire, The Secret Word of Intelligence, Outsourcing Who Wrote uh, in the Nation Diplomacy with North Korea has worked before and can work again. Well, thanks very much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive, Tim. Thank you. As usual in geopolitical situations, there's nothing simple about this one. At times, Trump says he wants to talk with North Korea, as he said on August 9th, as usual, bashing Obama. Quote, he didn't even want to talk about it, but I talk. It's about time. Somebody has to do it, end of quote from Trump. Of course, other times he and his administration have ruled that out, insisting that overwhelming force is all they understand. You write that, quote, as Obama left the scene and Trump arrived at the White House, relations were frayed almost beyond repair. That's not that well known. In the next few minutes, we're going to talk uh, about this and shed light on what the reality of the situation is, how we got here, and what might still work other than war. What do you mean about the Korean situation as Obama handed it off, handed off the White House to Trump? Did Obama exacerbate the situation? Uh, yes, he did. Obama was uh, of the mind that North Korea was going to collapse or somehow go away. And uh, so he, he sort of took a position of no talking directly with them and uh, upping the sanctions, upping the military exercises that, that the United States does with South Korea. And uh, there was much less diplomacy during his eight years in office with North Korea than there was during Bush. So uh, I think he did greatly exacerbate exacerbate the problem. 
And, uh, you know, that's the situation, you know, Trump inherited. I would like to say one thing about your introduction, though. I don't think this is scarier than Cuba missile crisis at all. For one thing, North Korea does not have a nuclear weapon it can place on an ICBM. The United States is is not vulnerable to a nuclear uh, 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 a nuclear attack by North Korea at them right now. They are on their way to building such a weapon, but they don't have it yet. Back in 1962, right. the Soviets you know, had fully tested nuclear missiles in Cuba, and so that's that's a pretty different different situation. That's a good point. I'm glad you clarified that. I yeah uh, yeah the the idea of of nuclear holocaust is highly unattractive, and it, you know you're right. We have to cool it down a bit. That they can't they don't currently have the capability of delivering it. Of course, you know this, this all this tension stems from the Korean War of the early 1950s, which actually never officially ended. My understanding is that North Korea experienced massive devastation, that more than 10% of its people were killed. We may have forgotten, but I'm sure they have not. What is going on now that has so inflamed the young Kim Jong-un? Your quote, you, you quote him as saying, he will negotiate if the U.S. ends its, quote, hostile policy and nuclear threats, end of quote, and will continue on the present display of missile and nuclear power if the Yankees persist in their extremely dangerous, reckless actions, end of quote. What is he talking about? Is there any substance to what he says? There's plenty of substance, yes. In fact, that statement was directed, that statement is from uh, when, in mid-August, Kim Jong-un military had said they would consider uh, shooting some missiles at Guam uh, not hitting Guam, but near Guam, uh, and the reason for that was because uh, the they knew uh, and it had been reported that uh, U.S. B-1 bombers uh, from Guam were doing planning to attack North, North Korea, uh, you know, from that base in Guam, and so uh, you know they were they were talking very specifically about you know the fact that. B-1 bombers are based there, and those are what we use to attack North uh, North Korea. And so he said at the time, you know, he was backing off of his decision to fire any missiles toward Guam and wanted to wait and see what the U.S. did. And he was specifically talking about these military exercises that started uh, on August 21st that the U.S. does in South Korea twice a year. And, of course, during these exercises, part of what they practice is is what they call decapitation strikes where they send in uh forces to you know kill the top leadership of north korea including kim jong-un these are practiced during these during these exercises and so they you know that's alarmed north korea and so like you know he was he was saying we're going to watch what they say what they do and with those exercises and the exercises continued and uh so he continued to you know test missiles and said you know, this this ensures our ability to fight in what he called the Pacific region and, you know, that part of the world. Uh, so, you know, the, while the, on, on the one hand, while North Korea makes threats to, to hit some a, a specific U.S. base, uh, the United States, you know, Trump and his Secretary of Defense, Mattis, talked talk in terms of annihilating right. North Korea as a country, uh, which is a little bit different. 
And, uh, you know, I think the language that's being used by the U.S. is extreme and, and is, is very extreme language. And it's, it's meant to just scare them into thinking they could be the subject of a massive, massive military strike, which might include nuclear weapons. And mm-hmm. so, you know, they, that, you know, when the, when the North Koreans talk about ending a hostile policy, that's what they're talking about. So, you know, as I said in that article, there is a history of U.S. negotiating with North Korea in an agreement that, you know, President Clinton reached with them long before they had a bomb in 1994 was, you know, they froze their nuclear development program for 12 years. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that. I I did want to ask about that. And just uh, for those who may have just tuned in, our guest today is Tim Chirac, a Washington-based journalist who has written uh, an article in The Nation, Diplomacy with North Korea Has Worked Before and Can Work Again. Leon Siegel, you wrote, former State Department official who helped negotiate that 1994 framework and now directs the Northeast Asia Security Project, and Korea is in Northeast Asia, said that when George W. Bush took office, thanks to diplomacy, uh, we had stopped testing, or, or he had stopped testing longer-range nuclear missiles. So why did that testing restart? So the, the 1994 framework, maybe you can talk a little bit about what the heck that was. Well, the framework was specifically focused on North Korea's, uh, you know, creation of a plutonium uh, plant, basically, that was that was going to make you know, the, the plutonium for uh, nuclear weapons. And uh, that was, you know, that was halted by this agreement that took months to negotiate under which you know North Korea stopped its its plutonium nuclear program in return for uh, fuel oil from the United States uh, right. because they had to shut down a reactor uh, that were being used to to produce plutonium and so they they shut that down and in return the U.S. sent gave them uh, fuel oil and was going to build them some uh, light water reactors that are considered less uh, proliferation more proliferation pro- proliferation resistant uh, and uh, but the most important part of the agreement was both sides agreed to end their hostile policy toward each other and move toward full economic and diplomatic relations right. and uh, during the early years of the Bush administration uh, the the agreement was trashed by President Bush because the Bush administration accused North Korea of of having a uranium program to get to the bomb. And actually, at the time, they were buying equipment that might be used to process uranium uh, into fuel for, for a, a nuclear weapon. But they didn't actually have a uranium program, but they used that as an excuse uh-huh. to break the agreement. And uh, the agreement was, was thro- you know, torn up. And, uh, you know, within a couple of years, the, you know, they, they restarted. They, they said, OK, uh, if that's what you're going to do. You're going to wreck the agreement. We're going to move forward on our nuclear plans. And by 2006, they had uh, exploded the first nuclear bomb. Mm. Uh, so I think, you know, the agreement really came apart during the Bush administration. But the Bush, you know, after invasion of Iraq kind of side sidelined yeah. the, the most extreme neocons like Rumsfeld and Wolfowitz, yeah. After that, Bush began to negotiate with them again. Hmm. Uh, and actually, you know, three weeks after they exploded their first nuclear bomb, Bush approved opening direct talks with Pyongyang. Hmm. Uh, and those talks, you know, 
became known as the six-party talks because they involved China and Russia, Japan, and South Korea, as well as the U.S. and North Korea. And they they were reaching a came close to reaching agreements, uh, and, the, and the talks broke down in 2009 for reasons I explained in the article uh, during the Obama administration. Yeah. Uh, so that that you know that that was the situation, but there was an agreement that held for 12 years. Uh, so, as you say, uh, North Korea's missile moratorium lasted until 2007, as Clinton right. Def- Defense Secretary William Perry said, and this is from your article. That was the moment when everything could have gone differently. Tell us right. about they that. were very, very close uh, to an agreement in 2000. Uh, actually, you know, people may remember that the Secretary of State at the time, Madeleine Albright, actually visited Pyongyang, met with the then leader Kim Jong Il, and they were they were negotiating this this agreement under which North Korea was going to stop all its missile production, uh, missile testing, and uh, in exchange for you know uh, this you know. Uh, a new relationship with the United States. They were willing to trade away their missile program to have a better relationship with the, with the United States and move toward normalization again. Uh, but, but you know, when uh, at, in the, the agreement was not finalized before, you know, Clinton left office, and then, you know, when Bush came in uh, with his crew of neocons, they were against right. the negotiations from the beginning, and he... Uh, Bush, uh, and, you know, at the time, you know, the South Korean president, you know, Kim Dae-jung, was very involved. And, in, you know, he had a summit with North Korean leader Kim Jong-il, and they were moving toward, you know, uh, various kinds of normalization of economic and political ties themselves. Uh, but Bush, uh, when Kim Dae-jung came to visit Bush, you know, Bush said he can't trust North Korea, so therefore he's not going to go along with that kind of approach. Mm. And, uh, you know, from that moment on, really... Uh, things really started to turn sour. Mm. Well, certainly in, it, it appears that in Pyongyang and Washington today, there's no lack of rather immature, in my opinion, macho posturing. As you write, talking to North Korea is a hard sell in Washington. They're convinced Pyongyang can't be trusted. You assert that opposition to diplomacy, quote, is likely to come from foreign policy hardliners who don't believe that diplomacy has ever worked with North Korea. Who are these people? What interests are these, and how powerful are they? And might there be a way of stopping them, working around these guys? Well, they're they're, they're large in number. I mean, you know, as I, I quote in the article, you know, it's people on you know CNN who just blatantly lie about about the history of diplomacy. They'll say, like John King, I quote him. You know, he says, "Yeah, we signed an agreement with North Korea, and they broke it the next day." That's just a flat out lie. And they just repeat this over and over again. You know, you repeat the big lie long enough, and, you know, right. of course, people believe it. Yes. And so that's the line on the networks, on the, on the cable networks, that negotiations don't work. And then you have this whole slew of, you know, North Korea experts at places like Heritage Foundation, yeah. Center for Strategic International Studies, all these kind of people who really help frame and shape U.S. policy toward North Korea, they have a very loud voice, and uh, all the you know pundits who, who support that view, or, you know, write in the Washington Post and the New York Times. So you have this sort of you know groupthink develop, mm-hmm. and and so uh, and, and it's a huge amount of propaganda in the in the media about North Korea, 
that, you know, does, as you mentioned before, you know, completely misses what happened during the Korean War yes. and why North Korea may not trust the United States. I mean, they, it was actually 30% of their population that was killed in 30%. U.S. bombing, not 10%. Oh my God. You know, some 3 million people died in the, in the U.S. bombing. Hmm. It was carpet bombing and napalm during the, during the Korean War that obliterated the entire country. There was nothing left to bomb. And, uh, you know, so, of course, you know, the, the Korean, North Korean, you know, people and leadership, you know, remember that. Yes, of course. Um, and, and uh, you know, it's, it's, it's taught in schools and museums, and it's, you know, part of their ideology is right. what the U.S. did in the, in the Korean War. So there's a lot, you know, of propaganda, of course, aimed at the North Korean people uh, by the Kim Jong-un, you know, government. And its predecessor, run by his father sure. and grandfather, and and you know it, it takes years to undo that. But that's why I think, you know, having uh, you know diplomacy and having engagement with North Korea is very important, uh, just as it was, you know, during the Cold War with the Soviet Union. They have absolutely, you know, artists and you know sports teams and you know that kind of that kind of visitation, you know, so you can sort of break down these barriers. It can work. Uh, but unfortunately, now in this situation, uh, the United States, is, you know, we're moving away from that. They just banned travel by Americans to North Korea for the first time ever. And, uh, you know, so it's going to be much harder for Americans to, to, go to, to go to North Korea, whether it's for tourism or for any, any other reason. And, and so, uh, you know, I think it's a bad time to be doing that. Well, there's always a need for politicians, especially egotistical politicians, to have some wiggle room, have some way of of looking like they're strong and like they won. I'm not seeing a way for the hardliners to come out of this uh, without a war. I mean, how can they look like they won? You know, they they, they got to be tossed some sort of a bone. Look, at, look at a war would be catastrophic. Oh, of course. I mean, yes. the war it's unthinkable. is not... You know, I don't think a war is going to happen. I mean, it's oh, just, you know, people in the Pentagon, people in the U.S. military know how dangerous the situation is and how much it could escalate. The dangers of miscalculation, you know, how, how quickly it could escalate. They're, they're aware of that, you know. Uh, you, yeah. US, U.S. military suffered a grievous loss in the Korean War. I mean, you know, tens of thousands of Marines, U.S. Marines died in North Korea. You know, after they crossed the the right. 38th parallel and went into North Korea, uh, so you know, you know, many many Americans died in that war, and it was a stalemate. You know, nobody yeah. won the war, right. Right. nobody won the Korean War, and they know, you know, it's a mountainous country. Yes, uh, it's just you know, it, it's a war that could involve you know millions of deaths, yeah. and, and and people are aware of that. So you know, I think. I think, uh, you know, even though they talk about war, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen. Luckily, they're, they're, you know, the United States is hoping that these sanctions, which they just increased at the U.N. Security Council, uh, are going to, you know, drive North Korea to sort of, you know, okay, you know, call uncle and, yeah. and, and start, you know, giving up their nuclear program. But I think, you know, what's necessary is to give them some kind of off-ramp yeah. So yes. they can see, you know, th there's proposals out there from the Russians and the Chinese, which the U.S. has just completely rejected out of hand, for there to be a mutual freeze, North Korea to freeze its nuclear and missile yes. tests, and the U.S. to freeze its its uh, its uh, military exercises with South Korea. I think that's a good starting point, but they don't 
want to do that. The United States yeah. uh, doesn't want to do that. So, but there has to be something. If you want to engage in diplomacy, which they say they do, right. there's got to be something you can offer the other side. You would think. And, you know, there's South Korea. Millions of people live there. And I can imagine they might be just a little bit concerned for their future with all this going on. You write that in 1996, Kim Dae-jung championed a new sunshine policy. What was that, and where does that stand now? Tell us about relations between the new government of South Korea and the Trump administration. Well, you know, Moon Jae-in was elected on a progressive platform, and he, you know, he wanted to go back to the sunshine period. And he often held up. I was there in South Korea when, when the election happened, and I saw, I actually interviewed him at one point while he was two days before his election, and I saw him speak at various election rallies, and he would hold up pictures of Kim Dae-jung and No Moo-hyun, the predecessor of Kim Dae-jung, and, you know, say he was going to follow in their footsteps and, you know, build this better relationship with North Korea. Uh, North Korea, unfortunately, uh, the Kim Jong-un government has not responded to any of his overtures. Uh, and, and so as the situation has escalated, Moon has just, you know, gone with a U.S. plan to, to escalate. You know, he's, well, you know, brought, expanded the, uh, anti-missile batteries, uh, that, that the U.S. and South Korea agreed to, uh, you know, about a year and a half ago. And those have been, you know, now there's six full sets of, of these stad anti-missile batteries there against a lot of opposition within South Korea. And, uh, you know, they're, you know they're, they're they're adopting the very hardline kind of policy that the Trump administration has been taking. Uh, but I, you know, my sense in being in South Korea and still being in close touch with people in in in, in various parts of South Korea is that they're a lot more concerned about what Trump may do than what uh, Kim Jong Un may. Do. I, I mean, they've yeah. you know it, that's what they say consistently, and you can see this in reports from you know mainstream newspapers as well. I'm sure. I can't imagine. So they they probably have to sort of walk on uh, eggshells with Trump. It's got to be a very difficult situation. Well, well uh, we all wonder what may now be possible, realistic. Surely the fire and fury Trump threatened, obviously, it's not the only option. We have domestic politics to consider. What might now be realistic and possible? There are a lot of regimes I don't like which have nuclear weapons. But they do. Is it possible we might accept North Korea as a nuclear power and temper its attitude with the U.S. toning down, its saber-rattling, too? Well, that's really, I mean, that's that's probably the only situation that, that's going to work. I mean, I think uh, the United States is probably going to have to accept North Korea as, as, as possessing nuclear weapons, which they do. <laughs> they already have them. They just don't have the capability to put them on an ICBM yet, but they may have that soon. So I think, you know, the, 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 the best we can hope for is for them to, you know, you know at least, you know, curtail the program, uh, but there has to be incentives for them to do that. Uh, and there has to be, you know, I've been saying, although I've been watching the situation over the last couple of weeks in particular, thinking that, there's got to be someone from the outside that can maybe come in and, and, and be sort of, you know, a negotiator between both sides. Uh, the other day, the, you know, the German prime minister, uh. Uh, Merkel, you know, said Germany might be uh, willing to, to mm. play that role. And, you know, I think it's going to take something like that, you know, some statesmanlike actions by somebody like, you know, Merkel or, 
you know, somebody sort of outside of, you know, the, the, the circle of countries that the U.S. is allied with in East Asia, right. you know, a country like Germany, you know, to, 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 to insert themselves and to try to get negotiations going. And, and I think, uh, you know, really, there has, to be, there has to be direct talks at some point between the U.S. and, and North Korea. Uh, I think that there's, you know, the U.S. is going to have to make some concessions yes. to, to, to do that, to bring that about. And it's possible, you know, they, they want to, uh, in all these situations, you know, you, you, you negotiate things away. Like they want, I think, more oil and, you know, just to be able to have, I mean, they've got millions of people apparently in not very strong economic shape. So the U.S. could theoretically uh, help with that. And what the heck, why not? So uh, thank you so much for being with us. I know your time is very limited. I appreciate that very much. Tim Sharrock, if people are, want to follow your work, what would you suggest on that uh, Internet thingy? I would say uh, go to my page. It's Tim Shorrock, and it's S-H-O-R-R-O-C-K. Go to my page at The Nation. You know, just look up me at, the, at thenation.com. And I have a page there that, you know, uh, gives uh, links to all my articles for The Nation over the years. Great. And over the last, you know, year and a half, I've been doing a lot of uh, stories about uh, this this topic about North Korea. True. So that's that's the best way to to find me. And if anybody wants to see left wing media, there is one. It's called The Nation. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks a lot. Bye bye. have to get over military madness. That is not 
the best way to deal with situations. Diplomacy. Yes, it can work. And uh, we're talking about uh, world issues today, world leaders. There's one old guy who uh, you can't imagine uh, anybody wanting to put his picture on T-shirts and coffee mugs and things like that. But it's happening. And it's long fascinated me and many others for 50 years or so, ever since his murder at the hands of CIA operatives in Bolivia, the icon of Che Guevara. One sees it everywhere you go, though less so in the United States. I've often wondered how much uh, T-shirt wearers really know about Che, who he was, what he stood for. But one thing has been clear, he stood for rebellion, the little guy the oppressed worker, the person who cared deeply about justice and saw the need to fight back aggressively. It's an image many seek to emulate, well, at least on T-shirts. But Karl Marx? Not a young guerrilla fighting the Yankee empire. No, he was into books. Serious academic exploration. One would never expect to see the image of 19th century intellectual popping up on T-shirts, mugs, posters, and graffiti. But as our guest on this portion of Keeping Democracy Alive reveals, Karl Marx is making a comeback. <laughs> Who'd have thunk it? We'll look into this phenomenon as it is and see what's ahead as we approach the gray-bearded one's 200th birthday. Kathy M. Newman writes about the history of mass culture in the U.S. with an emphasis on representation and social change. Newman's first book was Radioactive Advertising and Consumer Activism. Newman's current book project is called How the 50s Worked, Mass Culture and the Decade the Unions Made. She is our guest on this portion of Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you so much uh, for being with us, Kathy. Thank you. Well, as you say in your article, quote, for the last 60 years, Marx, communism, and socialism have gotten a pretty bad rap across the West, end of quote, noting that it has been associated with imperialism, genocide, and repression. Marxism has been. I think it's been more like 80 years, but in 1989, that bastion of alleged communism, the formerly mighty Soviet Union, crumbled into its component parts. The United States boasted loudly that we, our system of free market capitalism, which is really not exactly true, had triumphed, and communism was no more. I got My question is, those regimes, the images that we had of, you know, repressive, imperialist, uh, repressive regimes, was that, were they actually Marxist? I mean, I think that's a great, a, a great starting question, because it, one thing I've been thinking about is the fact that the Communist Manifesto is written in 1848. Communism is not an idea that's original to Marx. It's an idea that's very much in the air. It's part of revolutionary Europe in the 1840s. And I think what Marx and Engels did is they gave sort of the best summation or uh, kind of account of what communism could become uh-huh. with the Communist Manifesto. I don't see it as a blueprint. Um, I don't kind of go back to that document and look at it and think, okay, well, how, how is this document going to help us get rid of, co- of capitalism? The document's not that helpful. Um, at the same time, the Russian regime certainly did look back to Marx as one of its intellectual and kind of political forefathers. So I don't see 
really any communist country today or yesterday being uh, faithful to to Marx's ideas. But there's statues and busts and stamps and flags and all kinds of paraphernalia in all of those countries that have Marx's image on them. Yeah, interesting. It's a good thing to point out. I mean, it's exceedingly rare that, that thinkers just uh, have completely original ideas. I mean, there have been struggles for uh, the common good for, you know, many centuries, really, in all different ways. And, you know, he sort of uh, synthesized a lot of it and, and came up with, as you say, a a kind of a plan. It wasn't—you're right, I don't think it was a, a blueprint for governing, particularly. Not everyone is familiar, of course, with the word swag and uh, from the Urban Dictionary, I, I got the definition, swag, S-W-A-G stands for stuff we all get, swag. Typically when attending an expo or trade show, you get swag when people at booths hand out free stuff like pens, prizes, etc. What have you discovered about the image of Mark in swag across the globe? I wonder if you could give us some examples of this uh, new revival. It, it's really surprising, and I was glad that you talked a little bit about Che Guevara because I think that there is a kind of um, cool factor that some of these leaders from the past have. And I would agree that Che seems a little cooler than Marx. Uh, true. But if I look on Redbubble or Etsy, uh, what are those there's a few other T-shirt companies. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a hundred different Marx t-shirts to choose from. Wow. Um, and some of them are just silly and some are even sort of sexual, uh, <laughs> sexual jokes about like your lower regions or your, the, the lower classes. Uh, but, but a lot of them are uh, critical of capitalism. Uh-huh. Um, like I told you I was right. Um, uh-huh. Huh. Or uh, what are some other ones? And and then some are just sight gags. So there's one that says, I am not Santa Claus, uh, that has a picture of Marx uh-huh. with his beard. So uh-huh. some are silly, some are, are kind of lewd, some are political, but there there's many, many to choose from. And the same is true of memes on the Internet. There's thousands of memes that use Karl Marx. Interesting. And I guess there are... Oh, what, coffee mugs and I don't know what else there, there's out yeah, there. Yeah, I, I own a Karl Marx piggy bank. I <laughs> I had looked at a listicle about five years ago that was something like, uh, you know, gifts for your lefty friends or commie friends or something like that. And there were 50 items on it, and one of them was the Marx piggy bank. Yeah. And I think it was originally That's sold... Uh, out of Trier, the museum at Trier, which is where Marx was born. Ah. And I think Trier has been putting out some of this, uh-huh. this swag uh, pretty regularly. Ah. Uh, there's all kinds of mugs and T-shirts and piggy banks and stickers and, and, and stuff like that that you can buy at the Trier gift shop. But it really seems to have spread. It doesn't seem to have stayed contained in in Marx's birthplace. It seems like something that you know, that, that, an, that an ordinary person could run across and, and could find themselves purchasing. Interesting. It's, it's kind of uh, surprising and kind of not surprising. There's always, I mean, you know, the cool kids are always looking for something new. And, uh, of course, only a small, self-selected minority buys things known as books 
these days. My guess is our current, <laughs> my, my guess is our current president avoids such things as dangerous as books, preferring the safety of TV. But you report some interesting news from booksellers when it comes to Karl Marx. Do tell. So the 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 German publishing house that publishes most of Marx's work uh, in German as well as in translation, they noticed an immediate increase in sales of Marx's work after the financial collapse of 2008. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm seeing this a little bit in my own students. I have more and more graduate students and some undergraduates who want to take classes about Marx. And then I noticed it with David Harvey. David Harvey, uh, esteemed uh, Columbia professor, he's been teaching Capital, Volume 1, for 20 years. And he he has a sort of canned set of lectures that he's been working on and perfecting over these years. And right around, uh, just leading up to the financial collapse, I think it was either in the spring of, the fall of 2007 or the spring of 2008, David Harvey had his lectures videotaped. And those lectures have become wildly popular. Wow. They have kind of a cult hmm. following. It, it, volume, uh, Capital Volume 1 is so difficult that you want some kind of helper guide through through that text. And so David Harvey's free lectures online have, have just become hugely po- popular. Oh, interesting. I had not heard about that. And I read a lot of books. Well, I will... Uh, I will admit right now I have not read Capital. I didn't. <laughs> what can I tell you? It's really hard to read by yourself. Yeah. It's a really difficult text. If you just tuned in to uh, Keeping Democracy Alive, our guest on this portion of the show is Kathy M. Newman, talking about the revival of Mr. Karl Marx. And as you said, you point to 2008 as a big turning point. What happened to the global financial system then, and how consistent was Marx's analysis did it turn out to be with what actually happened? I mean, I think Marx is one of uh, the important critics of capitalism who argued that uh, crisis is not an exception in capitalism, but is truly the rule. So why many uh, kind of Wall Street analysts might have been clutching their pearls in 2008, oh my gosh, the sky is falling, there's a crisis, uh, uh, a Marxist student of the economy would see many such crises, many such such panics. You know, we had a stock market fall in 1987. Um, there yes. was a dot-com bubble and burst uh, in the late uh, 1990s and early 2000s. Right. So Marx sees that crisis is endemic to capitalism hmm. and that, ironically, these crises are much worse for the little guy than they are for the capitalists. When uh, when the property values go down, uh, when there's a kind of bust cycle, then that allows capitalists to actually swoop in, yes. get more property for a lesser price, mm-hmm. and then see that property rise in, in value again over time. Yeah, I think Trump actually did some of that, did he not? So Absolutely. He, hmm. he was one of the great cheerleaders of the 2008 collapse. <laughs> Okay, I mean, who'd have thunk it? You know, it's just too bizarre to 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 be real, but it but it was uh, quite real. And as you say, the housing market in two thousand eight. How, how did that fit with Marx's wisdom? Well, Marx did not have as as fully developed uh, kind of concept of how rent is exploitative. Uh, there's a great nineteenth century thinker named Henry George. 
who argued uh, that he, that the capitalism uh, that rents are the kind of most exploitive part mm. of capitalism. And Marx understood this. He has a term called rentier capitalist, meaning a capitalist who's primary profits come from rent and i think donald trump definitely fits that mm-hmm. uh, fits that profile um and of course we have the famous marx quote all property is theft right uh but i think what we saw in 2008 was that uh uh the products the the financial products it's fascinating to me that they're called products cuz they're really just uh, an idea that's yes. based somewhere on <laughs> a piece of paper that's a mortgage uh, but the financial products that were being sold, um, everyone was making a profit off of those products, except right. uh, the the sort of ordinary um, Joe and Jane Smith, who was just simply trying to trying to keep their home. Uh, so it was a crisis that, uh, in the end, especially because of the bailout, um, the very top earners made more out of that crisis, whereas. So many ordinary Americans lost their homes, lost their livelihoods, and basically lost a way of life that they will never see return. Yeah, it's it's so true. And I'm, of course, as a student of history, reminded of uh, you know the Great Crash of 1929. And frankly, uh, Marxism was very in vogue at that time as well, and continued to be so uh, around the world. And uh, uh, you know, only FDR by kind of mixing in a little bit here and there uh, prevented its spread. And certainly in the First World War, uh, you know, after the war had dragged on and on and on, a lot of the workers uh, in the trenches realized, what the heck am I fighting for? I'm fighting for these rich guys. Why don't the workers of the world unite and end the war? Of course, the uh, military top brass uh, saw to it that that kind of talk was ended rather quickly and oftentimes with a lot of bullets uh, against that. But uh, so back to uh, 2008, you know, and and the uh, the crisis then and Marx predicting, you know, it's a whole series of, of crises. It just it happens. And I was quite young in the 1950s. And uh, but I'll never forget images of the harsh boot of Moscow and the brutal Iron Curtain as pictured on TV commercials black and white, of course. If you said the word Marxism, communism, or even socialism, the listener would immediately stop listening. It seems different, very different with today's young adults, the millennials. Tell us about that, please. Why, why the big change? How do they feel about the words socialism and capitalism? Yeah, I think this is truly the first post-Cold War generation. I was born in 1966, so I'm kind of some people say right at the end of the baby boom or Generation X, depending on how you count it. And communism was still, uh, uh, Marx was a boogeyman when I was in high school. Uh, it was really the height of uh, that kind of 1980s Cold War mentality. It was still before uh, the Berlin Wall came down. And I knew myself to be quite progressive and, and left thinking in my politics. Uh, but I don't know that I would have identified myself as a Marxist or a socialist when I was in high school. It's completely different for the young people today. Um, a, a poll, in a, a Reason Root poll of 2014, um, found that between young people between the ages of 18 and 24, 58%, so a clear majority of that group, 
has a favorable view of socialism. And that's that's shocking to me as somebody who grew up still kind of in the shadow of the, the Soviet Republic. That really is interesting. And I understand, I think it's a majority of that same uh, universe feels negatively about the word capitalism. That's a big change, I think. And it's very, very significant. And and, and you suggest in your article that, ironically, the fall of the communist regimes may actually have helped lessen the threatening aspect of Karl Marx in the West. That's very interesting. Talk about that, please. Well, it's it's a hypothesis, but uh, that I'm imagining that because there isn't a or there isn't a superpower that's as associated uh, with communism and Marxism. Of course, China's quite powerful. Um, one of the things that I've discovered, I found this artist who took Capitals Volume 1, 2, and 3 and created them in a digital form, put them into a code, and then used that code to create a 3D sculpture that's quite beautiful. And this is a Chinese artist who says that they are required to read different sections of Capital depending on what grade they're in in China. Oh. So China is, has, still has quite a reverence for Marx. China just gave a statue of Marx to Trier uh, as a as a kind of pre birthday gift, mm-hmm. uh, looking looking towards Marx's two hundredth birthday next year. So China really is a communist superpower, but for some reason we don't associate China uh, as a as a bad. Uh, uh, I mean, for all the negativity there might be about China, it doesn't seem as much that it's about China's communism in the way that Russia's communism was so threatening uh, when you and I were growing up. So somehow communism as a world political force doesn't seem to have uh, the same implications. Not as scary. Um, And my hypothesis is that that allows young people to come to Marx or socialism or communism for the first time mm. without uh, a kind of superstructure of preconceptions of of how these ideas are going to be harmful. Fascinating. I love how history works. Always surprising. The conventional wisdom currently is that Marxism failed. It's overdone. The old order fell in 1989, and uh, and I understand the Soviet Union, China, and many other countries call themselves communists and Marxists, but, well, were they really? My, my impression is the Soviet Union was mainly just old-style Russian repressive totalitarianism and imperialism, and Maoism is Maoism, which is a little bit different. So people in their 20s, uh, in the 20-teens, uh, what do they see as Marxism? Are, are there countries where it has been successful and that people can look to. Of course, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, uh, Scandinavia. Well, I think uh, North Northern Europe uh, has become uh, a kind of imagined utopia for young Americans. And one of the things that I follow very closely is debates about education. Ah. And so if you look at the Finnish education system, kids spend hours of their school day outdoors playing, Mm-hmm. Uh, regardless of the temperature, teachers have uh, tremendous respect, high pay, and Finnish uh, students score higher on the big exam that they take when they're in high school than pretty much any other 
nationality uh, in the world. So uh, when I look to a country like Finland, I look at how much they invest in public goods and public services and public education. And it strikes me that that investment really pays itself back uh, to to the people of Finland. Um, uh, And certainly... uh... Go ahead. Norway, Denmark, and and Sweden, the other Scandinavian countries, they're also, you know, democratic socialists. As, you know, I thought it was interesting when when Bernie Sanders talked about democratic socialism, and he he looked to the Scandinavian countries. Of course, many people thought, oh no, you can't say another country has something better than we do. We have to be the, <laughs> the American exceptionalist, you know. But. Uh, uh, it didn't seem to have been political suicide to him to talk about that. And, uh, you know, they have their problems. They have their democratic uh, elections. Uh, but uh, interesting that, that allegedly they're some of the happiest people in the world. And, uh, uh, you know, may, maybe they can still be uh, looked up to as, uh, as an example of, you know, democratic socialism, non-threatening socialism. And, Many people insist that today's significantly reduced fear of socialism reflects a new turn to the left. It may. I maintain that when Arthur Schlesinger published The Vital Center in 1948, that center was where the so-called left is today in America. In other words, mm. we have a long, we've long had a healthy mix of capitalism where it works and socialism where capitalism fails to meet public needs. So more and more people are saying, uh, look, fire and police protection, snow plowing, public schools, national parks, et cetera, et cetera, are all actually socialism that works and augments uh, capitalism. And uh, FDR, one of my heroes, though he made mistakes too, uh, said that uh, you know organized money can be uh, as dangerous as... Uh, an organized mob, and that capitalism has to be in service to the common good. That's sort of out of fashion. I don't see swag of FDR right now, but my sense that is if people keep repeating this observation saying, hey, this stuff, fire, police, uh, uh, traffic lights, uh, national parks, this is socialism, the fear of that word continues to lessen. It doesn't seem to be as power-packed as it used to be, the word socialism. What, what do you think? I would agree. I, I've seen this post kind of in jest, but uh, in the wake of these last two hurricanes, um, I've heard people say, after a flood, everyone is a socialist. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the amount of public uh, resources that are needed to keep people alive during the storm and to help people rebuild their lives after the storm it's it's extraordinary. Um, yeah, people are are getting it that there's something called the common good. That heck, our founders uh, recognized that uh, the government should serve the common good. I don't know if uh, the Trump people would buy that now. It, you know, they they would like to return to some kind of uh, aristocracy. You know, and and we the people is just you know we're there to serve their interest. Well, perhaps, you say that perhaps one of the reasons for the comeback of Karl Marx is that, quote, capitalism has really outdone itself in the 21st century. What do you mean by that? I, I think that we're really seeing uh, a level of inequality that I, I don't think we've ever seen uh, in the U.S. 
um, in all of its history, where an extremely small group of people is able to maximize profits and keep keep the the benefits of the productivity. Workers are on a pretty much upward uh, diagonal slant when it comes to productivity. American workers are always constantly producing more, better quality for a lower price uh, more quickly. But the but the people reaping the benefits of that greater productivity is a smaller and smaller group of the wealthiest Americans, and in some cases, the wealthiest people in the world. And so I think that it's simply becoming more plain to ordinary Americans that they're working harder, they're making more, they're making more things better than they've ever been before, but they're not seeing uh, a, a a matching uh, increase in their quality of living, uh, in their health care, in their pensions, in their retirement funds. They see that somebody's getting away with something yeah. and that those somebodies are a small group of people at the very top of the pyramid. Sounds like Marx uh, was uh, rather prescient on many things. So we're coming up on the 200th anniversary of the birth of Karl Marx. Please tell us what's going on at the Carnegie Mellon University's Humanities Center. What kinds of things will be featured there? I understand there'll be a new film debuted by the director of the highly acclaimed I Am Not Your Negro. So tell us about uh, the 200th birthday of Carl. What's happening there? Well, I had this idea a few years ago when I realized the birthday was coming up. And I thought that it might be interesting to use Karl Marx as a way to focus a series of discussions and events and again, I've been a little bit careful to say this isn't a, a year of communist programming per se, uh, and nor is it simply a worship or a celebration of Karl Marx. But those of us in the humanities, we are always talking about labor and equality and the economy and social justice. And so I thought it might be really interesting to have a year that recognizes that that these are things that Marx for the most part, cared about, wrote about, and, and fought his whole life for. Um, so we are starting out. We're starting out with uh, uh, the young Karl Marx. We've got an event coming up in October where we're going to be thinking about robotics and the coming end of work. There are predictions that by 2040, most of the jobs in the U.S. done by humans will be automated. Um, we're going to have Jennifer Epps Addison here, who runs the Center for Popular Democracy, and think about how labor struggles and the struggles for Black Lives Matter, uh, DACA, black and brown people, how all of these connect, uh, how to organize, basically, in the age of Trump. And we're going to, uh, our last event for the fall is going to be two best-selling biographers of Marx, Mary Gabriel, who wrote Love and Capital, and Jonathan Sperber, who wrote Marx and 19th Century Life. They're going to be on stage together, and they're going to share sort of what it was like to write about Marx and, and how their view of him is quite different, even though they used many of the same materials. Very interesting. So if people want to find out more about that and to read more of uh, your thoughts and observations, Kathy Newman, uh, give us some uh, ways to contact all that on the electronic uh, thingy known as the Internet. Um, yes, uh, they can go to um, the Humanities Center, uh, and the the website for that 
is uh, www.cmu.edu backslash Dietrich, and that's spelled D-I-E-T-R-I-C-H, backslash humanities-center. Um, and they can just Google the Humanities Center at CMU. Right. That should pop it right up. Um, and they can also Google my name, Kathy M. Newman, uh, at CMU, and all of those same websites should just pop right up. Well, thank you so much. It's been uh, very much fun talking to you and looking at this. And there's no question Karl Marx was very, very significant in world history and continues to be so. Thanks so much for sharing it with us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. She's talking about a revival of Karl Marx. Revival by the Allman Brothers. What the heck? Thanks for listening. 